We're in chapter two in our study of Ecclesiastes, as uh, I'm sure you're aware. And I'm encouraging you not not necessarily to have them with you, but to have those notes that uh, Fred sent out that I, I've written. They're the kind of resource for you over the day or two that follows to go back and read. I would encourage you to do that, to make sure it impresses upon your mind and heart what King Solomon is trying to do here. Let's review. I think everybody's pretty much been here consistently online as well. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book written by King Solomon. He dies in 931 BC, so it had to be before he dies, obviously. Uh, Most expositors, and I certainly agree with that, would argue that he writes this near the end of his life. He's reflecting on his life, and his observation is that, uh, again, the language I've used, if the box is closed, if it's a closed box universe, there is nothing beyond the, the physical world, then things don't make sense. And I think you would all agree with that. So the phrase he uses is vanity, vanity is always vanity. And that word, it's a typical Hebrew word is used to talk about that which is futile, that which is meaningless, that which is purposeless. And Solomon's just saying, if I don't have God in the picture, things don't make sense. How did he arrive at that conclusion? That's the journey we're on with Solomon. And so I've used the figure of speech of a journey. This is what he's doing. So we know where it's going to end. We know the answer to his questions. We know the, we know the solutions to the puzzles that he puts on the table. But I want to go through this journey with him. I want you to see the struggle that he has with each one of these categories. Because to me, that's what makes this book relevant. I've used this book many, many times with individuals, particularly successful business people. And this, this is the kind of book that causes them to think honestly and carefully about what they're doing. And so last week, we spent uh, our, most of our time on verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1, where he looks at, and I clarified that, particularly human wisdom. He says in verse 13, and he repeats it again in verse 17, I applied my heart. That's heart is a figure of speech for the center of our will. He made this intentionally. He made this this, uh, thoroughly. He investigated all dimensions of human knowledge to gain human wisdom. And what did he find? It didn't give me an answer to the dilemma I face. So he does something else. And that's what start. We started it, but I want to go back through it again. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. I said in my heart. It's the same language. Uh, again, I repeat, heart in the Bible, Old and New Testament, is the, it's, a, it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech for the center of our will. It's that, it's that intentional decision on our part to do something. That's why the Bible speaks quite frequently of the hardening of our heart. It speaks that of Pharaoh, harden his heart. I'm teaching First Samuel in another class, and we're seeing that among the Philistines, they harden their heart toward God. We're reading also in the same book of First Samuel, the Israelites are hardening their heart. So the intention and, and, and their will, it's not soft and malleable toward God. It's hard. So he is intentionally going to test something. Come, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So that helps us to understand what's this paragraph about. 
verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2. Let's use a word that was the, the favorite word of, of the founder of the Playboy industry, Hugh Hefner, hedonism. That was the word he loved to use. I'm a hedonist, and I am pursuing intentionally pleasure. So he set his heart intentional. He set his heart to pursue sexual pleasure. He built an entire industry around that. Solomon is much larger than that. I built, I tested uh, my, my, my heart with pleasure to enjoy yourself. I said of laughter, mad, and a pleasure, what use is it? He's given us a conclusion right up front. But then he says, verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Translations there are a little bit different, but the point is the same. He's going to add to his body, add to his mind, add to his will something artificial, an artificial stimulant. I'm using language we use today. But that is not foreign to you, is it? He's going to use wine to stimulate, to enrich. It can distort. It can pervert. And he says, I'm going to intentionally use this. Now, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay out, to lay a hold on folly, so I might see what is good for the children of men to do under the heaven during a few days of their life. Now that he set up the test. I'm going to add this stimulant to my heart, to my, to my mind, to my body to determine is folly, is pleasure worth it? Is that the chief end? Let me ask you a question before we, we, we see how he digs into this and all that he does. Do you think that's a goal of many Americans in 2023? Now, I'm not talking about the drug addict. Obviously, there's something wrong there. We, we can deal with it. But I'm talking about just the typical American. Is their primary goal in life pleasure? And again, I don't only mean sexual pleasure. We have a lot of kids that are ODing on drugs that probably never try them because of the new situation we have, and we're dying. And they never, other than that first pill, never go any further. Okay. Question I have: Are they trying to learn something like he did, or are they doing a test, or are they just drifting? See, that's part of the, I think that's part of the way to approach this. You put people in all different kinds of categories. You have, uh, well, a teenager like Fred's example, or a young person who has never, ever been exposed to drugs. Their friends are doing it. They try it. And all of a sudden, they experience this artificial high, as it's usually called, and then they want to do that again. They want to do that, and all of a sudden, they're hooked on it. But for now, let's set that category aside. I'm talking about the typical middle-class American, man, woman, children. Is this the chief end of their life? Is that why they do what they do? A lot of it is, Jim. I, I, I believe that we, you know, we, we, we buy 
expensive toys and uh, and new cars and and it's supposed to give us pleasure and things like that. I think that we we do seek pleasure by doing and and having things. Okay, Rob. There is a school of thought that says mankind people have a, a built-in need for redemption. If you don't believe in the creator and an afterlife, the only opportunity for that redemption is this life. So I wonder if these people that are searching, that are doing everything they can to, you know, whether it's wealth, stuff feels good, or actually having a more or less altruistic view of life and now have a desire to help others. Are they searching for that redemption? I'm not going to answer that question, but you're raising it rhetorically, and I would certainly uh, agree with that. I would not disagree with that. Oh, it's kind of, it's kind of, they're just drifting. Hmm. They're not looking for anything. They're just, just kind of drifting through life. Yeah. 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 Somebody online said something. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, boat ownership. Uh, there are two, uh -huh. two, two best days of owning a boat, the day you buy it and the day you sell it. Okay. <laughs> I have a, a friend I've known for a long time that just reflects more of, of his attitude toward things before he became a Christian. But he said, I live for the weekend. I live for the weekend. Get a boat. He was uh, at that time. He uh, his boat he used out on the on the on the river, but also in a couple of lakes. And he would drive up to Minnesota and, and other places. Um, lives for the weekend. Think about that. I mean, you think about that language, and you're 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 seeing something that helps you to understand the fulfillment and pleasure and meaning and purpose I have for my life is what I do on Saturday and Sunday. Probably doesn't church. Well, but more than likely, and that was true of this individual before he came to the Lord. But it, it, that kind of an idea is not a foreign, what Solomon is posing here is not a foreign idea to Americans in 2023. I, you know, you, you look at a, Nicholas Eberstadt has just put out a book that's dealing with the question, why are men dropping out of the workforce? He's, it's a very, very good book. It, it's quite amazing, actual study. It's an updated book he wrote 15 years ago. And one of the, one of the issues, and Bill, Bill Strace fits part of what Everstadt is observing, they're just drifting through life. They have no purpose. And all they're doing, the, the primary focus of these 20, early 30-year-old guys, this is what he's talking about. He's not talking about teenagers. He's not talking about 60 years. He's talking about 20, 30-year-old men who have absolutely no goal and purpose in life. And what are they doing with their life? The two things they love to do is play video games and watch DVDs. That's their entire life. Everything revolves around those two pillars. That's what Ever said. He's not talking about millions and millions of men. He's talking about several million men, not tens of millions. And, it's a, and it, part of his argument is there's a wasted resource in our civilization. And he has a lot of reasons why this is occurring, a lot of reasons why this has been developing over the last 20 years. Has something to do with the feminist movement, has something to do with how we've championed. But that's not the point. The point is, here you have men that the chief end of their life is to play video games and watch DVDs. 
what will you find? Momentary fulfillment. But video games are just like a narcotic. They're addictive. And it produces addictive behavior. I have friends, I shouldn't say friends, two guys particularly come to my mind, but two guys I know particularly, they live primarily for football season. Everything revolves around football. Not only the Cornhuskers, but NFL football. I mean, there's just everything revolves around that particular passion and everything they do. That's what Solomon is addressing. A life that is pursuing pleasure, enjoying self and what you choose to enjoy for self. And so what Solomon does is he gives us, and this starts with verse 4, illustration after illustration after illustration of what he did. Now, I think most of, you, most of us in the room and online would, would concur, I would hope that you would concur, to make this time of choice is to choose a lifestyle of foolish, frivolous living. A life of really foolish, frivolous living. It's not that any of things, these things that Solomon chose to do or that these young guys have chosen to do it is necessarily evil. To play video games and watch it is not evil. But if that's all you do, that raises a big question. So Solomon starts with verse 4. These are the, this is the actual, starting with verse 4 all the way through verse 10, are the actual elements of his experiment. Now what he's doing is looking back on his life. This is what I did. I made great works. Solomon, of all the kings of Israel, Solomon engaged in the largest building program of any of the kings. Larger than his dad. Now, you know, the most important thing he built was the temple of God on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But he also built an incredible palace for himself. By the way, that palace has been found. Elaitza Mitzur, who's an Israeli archaeologist, is now engaging in a systematic archaeological excavation of that palace. She's found it. And it's going to be exciting in the next, it's going to take 10, 15 years. It's going to be exciting to see all that she discovers. We know where it was. And another thing, the very first thing he did, he built a big palace for his new wife, who was the daughter of Pharaoh, which is a no other question why he did that. And I'm saying all this because he had the money, he had the power, and he had the workforce, which was slave labor, to do what he wanted to do. So he did it. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made for myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He constructed an entire irrigation system because I'm sure you know this. Israel is basic an arid climate. It only rains a few months a year. The rest of the year is pretty arid, pretty dry. And so if you're going to do anything, you have to have an irrigation system. He built one. He goes on. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. And that, and that can mean chattel where you're in a property, but it can also mean servants that he hired. But he used, we know this, 
from the from the, 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 the first king, the book of first kings, we know that he used slave labor. That's how he built so much of his of his architectural uh, markings all over the, the nation. He said, I had house servants. Now, a house servant, which is what he's talking about in this verse, a house servant serves who? You. <laughs> These are domestic house servants. Uh, do you have a question? Where did the slaves come from? There were three sources of slaves in the ancient world. The most, the most widespread was debt slavery, where um, there was no such thing in the ancient world as in Israel or any other nation. There was no such thing as bankruptcy. If you could not pay your bills, you would, what we would maybe call today an indentured servant. You would, in effect, pay off your debt by serving someone. And it would be, you would enter into an agreement. It would be however many years it would be. They are, in effect, slaves. But it's not slaves. It's not property. It's not chattel. It's for a period of time. Second was through warfare. And uh, he was pretty much a, a, a king of peace, but he still controlled Moab, Edom, Aramae. He controlled all those areas, and a lot of those people were his subjects. And the third the third uh, source of slavery was voluntary servitude. Many people voluntarily entered into an agreement of servitude, in effect, to become a slave, because there was no other way they could care for their family or, or, or meet their specific needs. And she would voluntarily enter into a slave relationship. But the most common was debt slavery. That was the most common form. All right, uh, where am I? Continuing in the middle of verse 7, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks. And he makes this clear more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Now, why would he have so many animals? His banquets were extraordinary banquets, filled with all kinds of food and all kinds of delicacies. Now, in addition, some of those flocks would be used for the sacrificial system, which would be, of course, on Temple Mount. But that was usually run by the high priest. That was run by the Levitical priest, not by the king. So most of what he's talking about are his personal flocks of animals. By the way, we know from uh, the deep, uh, very thorough account of this in, in, in First Kings, he had all kinds of exquisite animals. See, Solomon, I wish I had a map here. I should have thought to bring one. But Solomon, Solomon built an enormous trade empire because he developed a port called Elian's Gabir, and he built that port on, the, on the, the, the Red Sea, and it allowed him to get out into the Indian Ocean. He had extraordinary trade relationship with what today we would call India, and he imported a lot of exquisite animals. In effect, Solomon had like a zoo, with all these exquisite animals, as well as the delicacies of certain food from these animals. So, I mean, you have to embellish this a little bit. This guy is living a luxurious lifestyle unlike anyone else. And by the way, what he did and how he lived was well known through the Mediterranean world. We have lots of extra-biblical material that refers to Solomon's reign and the exquisite nature, and you all know the story, it's not here in Ecclesiastes, but the Queen of Sheba. Sheba would be today modern-day Yemen, at the very tip of the Arabian Peninsula. That time it was a very different area. But anyway, she'd heard the story, she couldn't believe it, so she made a trip up to Jerusalem and saw him and spent time with him. 
had a cup of Starbucks coffee with him. Verse 8. That was a joke. That's not in the Bible, but I, nobody was paying attention, so he didn't laugh. Verse 8. I also gather for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. What does he mean by that? Solomon controlled, and I, in, my, in my book, uh, I have... I lay out the three different parts of the Israeli empire under Solomon. There were certain areas, Moab, Edom, and others, which were tribute states. Now, what, what's that mean? In other words, they were under Solomon's control, but they were ruled by their own ruler, but they paid an annual tribute into the treasury of Israel. And it was very, very high. That's what he's talking about. In addition, you have to remember something. Again, I wish I should remember to bring a map. But um, if you go back to some of the other handouts over the years, you can find a map of Israel. But there were two major international highways that went through Israel. One was along the Mediterranean. Rome would call it the Via Maris, along the sea. It was just called an international road. Went along the sea, up to Damascus. The other started way down in Arabia, went up through the mountains of Jordan. It, too, met in Damascus. These two major international highways. Now, both of those went through Solomon's territory. What do you think he did along those international roads? Tax them. He collected customs duties on every single wagon, every single donkey, every single cart that went on those international highways. That's what he's talking about here. That is how he became so fabulously wealthy. That is how Israel became so fabulously wealthy, how all of the world knew about the kingdom of Solomon. He was not only wise, he was an innovative, sophisticated bureaucrat. He knew how to, and I'm serious, he knew how to use his political and economic power and leverage it for his own personal benefit as well as the kingdom. That's why the golden age of Israel, in terms of the history of Solomon, that's the golden age. And so he's telling us what he did. And I mean, it's, you know, you read about this, well, that's, I know people that do that. They not only have one house, they build a house in Costa Rica, they build a house in, in California, they have a house down in Arizona, and some of them buy a castle in England. I'm using extreme examples. But that's the same. Why? Why do that? Because I'm going to use my money to pursue the good life. I'm going to pursue pleasure. Again, it's not just sexual pleasure. He goes on, middle of verse 8. I've got singers, both men and women. That, the folk, that doesn't mean somebody that just sings. This is what we're talking about. Professional musicians that he hired, that played for him during his banquets, that played for him personally, these are professional musicians that he hired and put on the payroll of his kingdom. Notice, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. Now, concubine is translating a word from Hebrew into English, because we don't use the word concubine. But he had many mistresses. As a matter of fact, you go to 1 Kings, he tells us he had 3,500 concubines. 
take just take a moment and think about that. <laughs> he could take a different woman to bed every night. How many years would it take him to get back to that woman he started with? I mean, you're talking about an extraordinary indulgence in pleasure. And he goes on. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And that's an understatement. His father didn't live like that. As a matter of fact, no other king of because remember, when he dies, the kingdom splits into two. No other king lived like he did. Also, my wisdom reminded, remained with me. I still remain wise. And then this most extraordinary statement in verse 10. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Now, because we know a fair amount about Solomon, he had the material wealth. Anything that he wanted, he got it. Anything that he desired, desired he bought it. And so it's, it's a little bit like not completely and not exactly, but it's a little bit like some of the hedge fund billionaires in American civilization are young. You know, we have some billionaires in the United States that aren't even 40 yet. And many of them, not all of them, but many of them make their fortune in things like hedge funds, where you can make an extraordinary amount of money in a very, very brief period of time. And then you retire. I'm sure you've read something in the Wall Street Journal every now and has an article. Some of the guys who retired at age 36, they retire. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means they're going to live on their fortune the rest of their lives. And these are the guys that are, you know, have collections of cars and have multiple houses. And again, you know, one thinks an extreme of it, Jeffrey Epstein. You've heard of him, haven't you? Trump spent time with him. A lot of the Prince uh, uh, Andrew of, of the royal family and the Windsor family in England spent time with him. What did he do? He spent his fortune indulging in sexual pleasure. A lot of young girls. And you know that where that got him, and he ended up committing suicide. But anyway, my point is, what Solomon is saying is not foreign to us in 2023. But we can bring it down to what I was saying earlier. What, what Nick, uh, Nick, Nick Eberstadt is saying in his book, this is what a lot of young men are doing in America. They're still living with their parents. They're 30 years old. They have no purpose in life, and their life is characterized by watching DVDs and playing video games. That's their chief end in life. That's their purpose in life. They're seeking pleasure and meaning through artificial stimulation. So what Solomon, Solomon had the wealth, he had the time, he had the ability to indulge himself. This is the epitome. When you read verse 10, that's the epitome of self-indulgence. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them. That's the epitome of self-indulgence. And self-indulgence 
is the key to modern marketing techniques. You have a need. You don't know you have that need. I'm going to tell you what the need is, and I'm going to help you fulfill the need. Well, I didn't know I needed that. Until you have Apple advertisements about this. You know, I have a guy, every time the new Apple phone comes out, he immediately must get it. Why? I have, for years, I had an Apple 6, and he kept saying, why do you have a 6? You can get an 11 now. Why? The reason I have a phone is for convenience, and I like being able to access certain things, but I don't need a higher-level Pixel camera on my phone. But you do. It's available. See, that's it. That mindset that Solomon is talking about is the mindset of many in America today, indeed in Europe today, indeed in parts of China today, and the growing growing economy of India. Jim, don't we, uh, we all can, everyone in this room, everyone outside, entire world, Experience can experience what Solomon experienced at the level that they operate in, in the sense of having boats and houses, sure. things of that only defined like Solomon's. I'm not, this doesn't really, in my soul of souls, make me happy and fulfill me. Oh, absolutely. 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 And, and so it just shows our need to take this work that we study and to share with us to people who will probably come up and say, I need that. I really do. Because they've got a solid miniature. Well, that's that's one of the points. This is an original thought with me. Ameri- many, many, many Americans today can live the life that Solomon lived. Not to the extravagant extreme, but still live the kind of life Solomon lived. Whatever my eyes desire, I'm going to keep them moving. Do you ever see the bumper sticker, the one who wins is the one who has the most toys? I'm not sure that's the exact wording, but it's, it's something close to that. Now, listen, I, I don't want to dwell on this anymore, but what Solomon is saying here as he's testing this, human wisdom doesn't satisfy. That was the previous paragraph last week. What about the pursuit of hedonistic pleasure? Does that satisfy? Does that answer my question, all is vanity? Does that solve that? Does that bring meaning and purpose to life? Does that help fill the the futility, the emptiness I'm feeling, Solomon is saying? What does he say? Then I considered all, this in verse 11, then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil that I expended in doing it. Behold, all was vanity in striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, there are phrases that he keeps repeating through the book, and we've seen them earlier in chapter one. So he's saying the same thing, but he's, he's researched, this didn't solve my problem. This didn't fill in the big hole in my life. Well, I, he, has, he has not yet brought up God in this book. He's about to do that, but he hasn't brought up God yet. 
You know, the other critical issue that is unfolding in American civilization among young men is increasing levels of suicide. Now, that's a complicated issue. Why do people make that decision? It's a very complicated issue. It's not a simple answer to that. But certainly, at least we can say there's a big hole in that person's life that they've tried to fill it with something, and it isn't satisfying. Now, there are also mental health issues. That's why it's a very complicated issue, the issue of suicide. But what Solomon is saying here, I, and I'll put it the way I put it earlier, he is the epitome of self-indulgence. It didn't work. I think I've mentioned this if I didn't, because I teach a lot of different classes, so I'm never sure where I say things. can't remember always, but I remember reading uh, when I was in my doctoral program an interview with John D. Rockefeller that a uh, a reporter had had done with him. You, you know that name? Everybody knows who he is. Very, very one of the wealthy robber barons, as they were called at that time, the late 19th, early 20th century. At that time, John D. Rockefeller, at least on paper, was the wealthiest man who ever lived. Uh, he basically had a monopoly on the oil industry, and he he was fabulously wealthy. And it's just it's almost it's it's hard to it it's like guys like today, you know, Elon Musk and and, and the guys who who you see in the Forbes ranking of the wealthiest men in the world. They always come out one of their issues with that. And, you know, just uh, you can't put a figure to it. And so the reporter said to Mr. Rockefeller, in all that you're doing, what do you really want? This was his answer. Just a little more. When I read that, I thought, my goodness, how revealing that is. Just a little more. So his billions and billions and billions of dollars wasn't enough. He just wanted a little more. And to sort of soften his conscience, he lived in New York City. He would go out into the streets of New York City and pass out dimes to people. Now, today, that would be, most people say, I don't want a dime. Give me more than anything. I'd be passing $100 bills or something. But then a dime was really worth something. And, of course, he built. He built the great Riverside Church, if you've ever seen that, in, in, in New York City, as well as many other things. So these guys were extremely wealthy, really engaged in widespread philanthropy. Andrew Carnegie did the same thing out in Pittsburgh, Carnegie Mellon University, for example. He built, Carnegie built libraries in communities all over the United States. The library I grew up with back in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, was built by Andrew Carnegie. I mean, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But you have enormous amounts of wealth. What do you do with it? Well, philanthropy becomes an issue. Solomon doesn't talk about that here. But material wealth doesn't satisfy. There is nothing evil about material wealth. The Bible doesn't condemn that. But it's what you do with that material wealth. I know I told you this story, but in uh, Pollock's biography of Billy Graham, he has an interview with all of the, the early board members when the BGEA was, Billy Graham Evangelist Association was formed in 1940, late 40s. This guy was from Boston. He was one of the original blue buds of Boston. Very wealthy family, their wealth goes way back into the history of America. 
And so Pollock asked him, why, why did you join the board? Why do you do what you do with your wealth? He said, my father taught me our wealth is not an idol. It's a tool. It's a tool for God's kingdom. He has the right perspective. Did you ever hear the name R.G. Letourneau? You ever hear that name? Letourneau was from South Texas. He built an enormous industry of very heavy construction equipment. I mean, not the little dump trucks that we see. These enormous, these enormous equipment with, you know, the tire, the size of this, the heights of this ceiling. Really heavy construction equipment. Fabulously wealthy man. He gave 90% of his wealth to the Lord. Every year. He didn't tithe. He 90ist. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a word. I'm using that. I'm, I'm using this as an example. Here's an illustration of an individual whom God blessed with material wealth and the capacity to make money, but he's a steward by giving it for the Lord's work. A friend of mine's father, who died not too long ago, used to say this. The most important thing to have is good health. The most important thing to acquire is a good education. The most important thing to be is a giver. I like that. All Solomon is saying is, I indulge myself unlike any human being who had ever lived. Here's my conclusion. It didn't satisfy. It did not fill the hole in my heart. All right. Got it? Any questions online? Nope. All right. Russ? Nope, I'm good. Okay, I saw the light come on. I thought you would ask a question. All right. Well, this is way too convicting, so let's move on, all right? Let's look at verse 12. So, now I read from the ESV translation. Some translations have, therefore, I turned, consider wisdom and madness and folly. Now, What does he mean by this? This sounds a little almost frivolous. Why are you doing this? Well, let's think about it from this perspective. When Solomon was about to become king, you know this because we've talked about it, but you know that's part of the story of Solomon. He felt inadequate. And God said, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially that's it. And Solomon says, I don't know how to rule. I don't know how to be king. Give me wisdom. And so God grants him that wisdom and that, that all those words that in the Old Testament go with wisdom, prudence, discernment, discretion, understanding. Those words all fit Solomon. So he wants to probe something. I want to consider, this is, I'm going to put it in, in my words, and hopefully this will make sense. Solomon says, what I want to do is I want to consider the two extremes of the human condition. I want to probe the wise person, person who has wisdom, 
I am a person of Solomon speaking. I'm a person who has wisdom. But I also want to explore the fool. I, these are the two extremes of the human condition. The fool lives for the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry. The wise person is the person who's saying, well, I want to be frugal. I want to be a good steward. I want to plan. I want to be strategic. I want to have clear tactical objectives. I'm using language we use in the business world today. But that, that's, when, that's the wise person. The person doesn't only live, the wise person doesn't just live for the moment. The wise person is someone who's a good steward of everything, who is careful, who's discerning, who has insight into the consequences of their choices. Is it better to be wise or is it better to be a fool? Well, that's not a hard question to answer, except for one thing. Now, I have 10 minutes. I don't know if I can get through all this, but we're going to try. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what he has already done. No one's going to be able to do what I've done. Then I saw, meaning he had investigated this, he had reached a conclusion, I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than in folly, more gain in light than in darkness. What do you mean, Solomon? Verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. What does that mean? Has his eyes in his head. The, the wise man has charted out exactly where he's going. His eyes are in his head. He, has, he knows exactly where he's headed. He knows if I do this, do this, do this, this is going to result. I knew that I planned this, plan this, plan this is what's going to happen. He's forward thinking. He's strategic in his thinking. How about the fool? He walks in darkness. The fool couldn't care less about tomorrow. I'm living for the moment. But Nicholas Eberstadt said, young men in their 20s and 30s are living for the moment. You and I and the Bible would call them fools. And yet I perceive. This is so insightful. Yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. What's the event? Death. They both die. Boy, there is a pen that's inserted into your bubble and pricks it. That's the bottom line. So I said to my heart, to my heart, verse 15, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I don't know about you, but that's a pretty piercing rhetorical question. He observed, it's better to live my wife wisely than foolishly. However, the wise man and the fool both die. So why be wise? Now listen, if the box is closed and there's no God, possibly the wise person should really be a fool. 
live for the moment. Really, seriously. If there's nothing transcendent, there's nothing beyond the physical world, then why be wise? Seriously. And that's what Solomon is pressing. And I said in my heart, this too is vanity. Verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies, just like the fool. No enduring remembrance. This is a... This is another one of these piercing observations about life. So Solomon reaches this conclusion in verse 17. What a terrible way to end our class. What a depressing way to end our class on January the 10th, 2023. So I hated life. Because remember, he is, we're on this journey with him. He has not yet brought God into the picture. He's not yet factored into all of this, the eternal perspective of things. And that's why when someone gets older and older and older, they start thinking this way. Why have I done all this? You know, a 21-year-old, you talk to them like this, they'll say, yeah, yeah, that's something to think about. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it doesn't, for the most part, a 21-year-old, this doesn't pierce their heart like it should, but it doesn't. But someone who's 71 or 81, you know, that's really a good question. Why have I been so wise? Maybe it would have made sense for me to just indulge like he did in verse 9 and following, or verse 10. Where am I? Maybe that'd be, that's perhaps, that's really the wise way to live because I'm going to die. And I look at the wise man, I look at the fool. Bottom line is they're both going to die. Why be wise? If the box is closed, that doesn't make sense. And that's just an extraordinary statement for Solomon to make. I hated life. What is done under the sun was grievous to me. All vanity striving after wind, striving after wind. You run after wind, you can't ever catch the wind. So Solomon, he's got this enormous question mark over his life. Words grievous to me. Hate life. All right? These are strategic moments of silence. For you to think about this, Rob. So, hasn't he shown, though, a tremendous amount of discipline? After all, he's David's son. He knows about God, and yet he has purposely structured this closed box model so that he doesn't look at another life. He doesn't look at God. He's got this thing closed box. I think that is intentional on his part, but I think he's also saying something else to us, Rob. 
excuse me, practically speaking, this is how I live my life. This is, I'm going to solve speaking. Practically speaking, even though in my mind, I knew there was a God, practically speaking, I was living my life as if there is no accountability. Eternity doesn't matter. I'm going to live for the moment. I've got to figure out the meaning and purpose of life on my own. That's why we're about, we're about to see him at the end of this chapter, chapter two. We're about to see him bring God into the picture. He hasn't brought God into the picture yet. He's about to do that. And listen, this, I think, is, is not something new. It's not a new truth to you, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. You and I, as Christians, who have the hope that's centered in Jesus Christ keeping his promises, should be able to show people what a fulfilled, meaningful, joy-filled life looks like. But quite often, the Christians I'm around aren't sending that kind of message. They're the miserable, grouchy, not very nice to be around people I've ever known. This class is the antithesis of that. I know. This class, I, I, I didn't say, I remember, I didn't say any of you. And none of you online. You all are the epitome of learning the lessons that Solomon is teaching us. But aren't, don't you agree with that? That we should be showing the world what the joy-filled, purpose-filled life looks like. Because everything we do is for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Rob. I, I knew a former crack addict that performed and graceful. He was on fire for the Lord. And his Main objective, the thing he bragged about most, was being able to walk up to somebody or meet somebody, a stranger in a grocery store, and have that guy say, my goodness, you're living for me. You can see that he's a Christian. And the guy would say, you are so happy. I want what you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's good. All right. I'm. I didn't think we'd be able to get this uh, done. I'm. I'm really thankful we were able to get this far. What I want to do next week is start with verse 18, because you're going to see the same. I hated all my toil. We are at one of the significant low points, and there are going to be several of these in the book of Ecclesiastes. For a king like Solomon, with all his wealth and all that he's talked about his pleasure, to say, I hated life. What? An American would look at, what? You hated life? You had everything. How could you hate life? You have seven homes. You have many wives. You have 3,542 concubines. 
You hate life? In the fourth century and into the early fifth century, a man named Augustine. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but I would encourage you to read his confessions. The greatest spiritual autobiography ever written, in my judgment. I have many people read it. I used to make it an assignment for my students. I have two guys in my church right now reading it. They both came back. It's like, I, it's like this was just written. Because what, what Augustine does in the confessions is he talks about his life. This is where I was, Augustine says. It's kind of life I live. He lived in the late 300s into the early 400s. And in that book, The Confessions, he, he makes this statement. Our hearts, our minds, and our souls find no rest, O God, until they rest in you. Now think about that, but that's exactly Solomon had an enormous hole because he was leaving God out. He was living his life as if God didn't exist. That's how Augustine lived his life. He writes in the Confessions, one time when I was a young boy, I stole a bunch of pears from my neighbor's pear tree. And he asked, was I hungry? No. Did I have a need? No. I just wanted to see if I could do it and get away with it. He says an illustration, I wasn't innately good. I was innately evil. I did things that were sinful just because I enjoyed doing them because they were sinful. But he reaches this conclusion. Our hearts, our minds, and our souls find no rest, O God, until they rest in you. That's a good sentence, isn't it? We have this, this is what, Saul, that's what Augustine would then as he explains it. We have a big hole in our heart. That hole is never filled until we come into a personal relationship with living God through Jesus Christ. Then it's filled. This is what Solomon is probing this. He's on this journey. We're with him. And I don't know about you, but every time I read these paragraphs, I have no difficulty understanding what he's saying. Because this is where so many people I've rubbed shoulders with my life. In my life, this is where they are at. This is where they're living their lives. This is how they're organizing everything around their lives. And the more they do it, the more they find it isn't working. I've got to quit. I really do. So I'm going to pray. I will see you next week. We'll start with verse 18. Father, thank you for Solomon. Thank you for his, near the end of his life, to sit down and pen this remarkable book. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring it. You superintended the writing of this book so that we, 3,000 years later, can read it and benefit from it. We have no difficulty understanding what Solomon is saying. Lord, this is just another piercing, penetrating dimension of how the Word of God works. It does pierce our hearts. It does challenge our minds. It does show us the way to live. So thank you for this book. Thank you for its challenge to us. And we are men of God who are serious about our faith. We're men of God who see what we do as eternally important to you. We are created in your image. You've rescued us from our sin. You've redeemed us. You've given us that enormous privilege of 
the promise of eternal life. We have the hope as centered in Christ keeping his promises. Therefore, we live differently. We enjoy the material things you give us. We enjoy the benefits of living in this country. We enjoy the benefits of, of a degree of prosperity. We enjoy the benefits of food and drink. We enjoy the benefits of a home. But all of this is from your good, gracious hand. We owe it all to you. And we want to be certain that we seek to represent you. We have the answer. We, we have the answer to that hole in the human heart, as Augustine said. We found our rest in Jesus, and that is the answer to all of the issues that are part of life. It doesn't make life any easier. It just means you have added power, added enablement, and an eternal perspective in how we live our lives. Bless these men. May they be strong men of God, men of faith, who represent you well. We ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.